Welcome to the RootDown.us community podcast. My name is Melissa Rudder, and today we're going to be connecting with Pamela Ferguson and Deppa Persinger. Pam Ferguson teaches Asian bodywork therapy internationally and has also written several books. Pam and longtime friend and colleague Deborah Persinger, PhD, recently co-crafted a teacher's anthology, Sand to Sky, where they interviewed 26 global teachers of Asian medicine in a QA format. Deborah is currently the executive director of the Federation of State Massage Therapy Boards. The two first met when Deborah was the NCCAOM's executive director of testing and certification services and the interim CEO. Pam and Deborah brought very different skills into the anthology. Both are passionate about teaching and innovations in education, and both saw a need to document, for the very first time, some of the outrageous methods and fresh experiences of progressive teachers of Asian medicine from both Asian and Western backgrounds. Welcome to the show, Pam and Deborah. How are you both doing today? Terrific. Well, thank you, Melissa. Excellent. I'm very glad that both of you were able to join us. This is a very special treat for our readers, and I hope that they, uh, they enjoy what it is that you have to share in regards to your book. I've had the opportunity to read Sandal Sky, and um, it's very unique in that it provides a bird's eye view of education of the practitioner, a topic that is imperative to the development of the field, and is also not fully dialogued about within our community. And I'm curious to know what you two see as some of the successes in the way that this medicine is taught in the U.S. today. I, I think the important thing is the um, innovative qualities of different teachers and um, the freedom with which they can experiment with some very new teaching methodology um, to make the topics a lot more pap palatable and acceptable to a Western student from very, very different backgrounds, and also, of course, to a Western patient. And this, for me, is is where the um, the growth of, of Asian medicine, um, you know, will develop or evolve in the future. And that's why we really wanted to showcase, you know, the marvelous work being done by Marianne Travlioni with her outreach clinics and her off-site clinics in hospitals in Brooklyn, and also um, Kathleen Golden with her post-9-11 um, amazing clinics, 24-7 clinics that were done. Um, these were very important to showcase. And also just some of the innovative techniques that kind of brought dry textbook uh, material alive, like the work of Barbara Escher, bringing a lot of theater and pantomime um, into her teaching of foundations of Chinese medicine. So I think it, it was this zeal and excitement and everybody that we interviewed, um, we had either watched teaching or were personal friends of ours. Um, so we were you know, very familiar uh, with their uh, extraordinary innovations and their experiences and what they were trying to do. So uh, nobody, in fact, came in cold. Either Deborah or I knew them all and had actually watched them teach or just, just knew their styles. Excellent. De Deborah, do you have any thoughts that you would like to add? I, I do. The, um, as a non-practitioner, I think the field of Asian medicine is such a dynamic arena. And even with the more seasoned practitioners that I have interacted with they I mean it's it's a lifelong learning kind of a quest in Asian medicine so it doesn't just stop at the classroom but um, traditionally at least in the Asian countries they learn the medicine almost by a rote method um, mm. and Jamie Wu highlighted that in his chapter but in the United States it, it, 
you know, learning and information has to have meaning. And I think experiential learning is really pivotal um, to the progress and the way that the, the um, transfer of this information is being conducted in the U.S. right now. So this book really is a great segue or really blazes those trails to, to uh, reinforce that innovative teaching methodology. Mm-hmm. Which, do either of you have a, a particular interview that comes to mind that really sort of stands out um, with, you know, the success that you see in the way that it's taught? I know, Pamela, you, you mentioned a few, um, but I'm wondering if there's perhaps one that you would really like to highlight or two. Mm. I've mentioned some names, Deborah. Why don't you mention some? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I have a personal um, interest in the more psychosocial aspects. So for me, uh, Kathleen Golden's work after 9/11. I mean, the more um, like the human services aspect, reaching out into the community rather than just having a, an ill patient, you know, walking through the the door of the practice. So. Um, I would say Kathleen's work out in the in the community would be. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about her work for those of uh, uh, the viewers who have not uh, had the opportunity to read the book yet? Sure, um, and I, I won't give away the whole story because we'll maybe entice them to to read it in Kathleen's own words. But uh, she was pivotal and in, um, or instrumental in. Uh, featuring the acupuncturist without borders. And so after the, 9-11, the September 11th incident in New York City, and Kathleen Golden is based in New York City, is where she practices, um, she ended up uh, gathering together a community of acupuncturists and Asian body workers to actually treat the, uh, the fire people, the, the police, the service people, and including their animals um, and helping with the trauma and the fatigue and everything that went along with that rescue process. Mm-hmm. Um, Kathleen's also worked in uh, rape crisis or sexual assault counseling in that field as well. So she's done an enormous amount of really beneficial uh, community service, um, is how I guess I would, would describe it in an umbrella kind of a fashion. That's very interesting because we often don't hear the stories about people who have gone in um, from an Asian medicine perspective and, and provided services for something like 9-11, so that's, that's very interesting. Well, yes, and I, I thought think... it, was, it was good that she also tapped into the animals, the search dogs, I mean, mm. who also, you know, grieve when they don't find the person alive. I mean, there was that whole, not just the human aspect, but also the, uh, you know, our four-legged friends as well, so. Um, I think, to, again, to go back to um, Marianne's experiences um, with an off-site clinic, actually in one of the bigger hospitals in New York, I think it's in Brooklyn, um, where the students are also exposed to a very multi, multicultural setting and really have to, to navigate um, some often very tricky situations where, say, the families of the patients are involved because that's part of the cultural norm um, or where people don't express um, their pain or their emotional pain or their psychic pain, let alone their physical pain, and really having to read body language, read nuances, 
and um, maybe even work in a different language with a translator or an interpreter. And I think this also helps to develop an incredible sensitivity and intuition, which is going to help any practitioner of Asian medicine working in any sort of inner city or large multicultural city. And this for me is absolutely crucial because of course I work with many different cultures and um, um, it, it's, it, gives, it gives students a very unique ability to do this on a one-on-one -on -one basis and not just make cultural assumptions. Um, you know, when I, prefer, when I prepare students for student clinic, I do a very outrageous thing. I say, all right, how many of you in this room can speak a different language? And usually there are four or five who speak, you know, Korean or Chinese or Italian or German or whatever. I say, fine, go out of the room, create a persona, come in and try and express what it is that you need without any use of English at all. And at the same time, well, the Italians, we had no problems reading. <laughs> but um, in other cultures where there's a minimum of body language and maybe an inhibition about expressing anything that's very deep, this was quite a challenge for the students. But it, it developed their um, sensitivity, as I say, to read nuances, to read body language and inhibitions and um, cultural sensitivities in the patient that they might not normally experience in a, you know, in a white middle class American patient, let's say. And this was a great training. First of all, it was very funny. Um, but, but secondly, um, I found it a profound part of the um, the whole training and developing those in, intuitive qualities that go way beyond pulse, tongue, hara diagnosis, five element diagnosis or, or, or anything. Um, and I think Marianne does a lot of this um, and uh, Kathleen does as well because they're both working in New York City in very multi multicultural environments. And I think um, this is one of the keys to the future training of any practitioner in Asian medicine, whether it's acupuncture or bodywork or a combination of the two, is to develop those skills. And um, we, we do hit this a lot in the book. We do talk about sort of cross-cultural misunderstandings. Um, and especially, and I think this is where Jamie Wu, Deborah mentioned Jamie Wu's um, chapter, which comes very early on in the book, where he mentions the way he and also his colleagues, in this case from Chengdu uh, University Hospital in China, had to adapt to an American student, you know, who put their feet up on the desk and chewed gum and challenged them and asked questions very, very different from, a, um, say, a typical Chinese student of acupuncture who came straight out of high school and was trained not to ask questions and um, not be as challenging and as provocative, say. So this works both ways, really. And um, I think where there are cultural misunderstandings within a school environment, um, and these do crop up from time to time, um, it's very, very important to have what I call brown bag lunches where these misunderstandings or miscommunications or misunderstandings of language or nuance can be ironed out in a group setting with, with decency and frankness without finger pointing or you said this to me or I did that. But, but in, in a sort of a, very respectful kind of group setting. And again, I, I find this uh, an absolutely crucial part of the, um, you know, the very modern 21st century training of a practitioner. 
Um, and this goes way beyond the textbook. And of course, a lot of it depends on the zeal and imagination of the particular schools and their openness to this. I would, I would have to agree with you. I know that in my time in graduate school for Chinese medicine, um, there was definitely a lot of um, a lot of learning involved in working with different instructors and understanding their cultural backgrounds and what was appropriate to ask and not ask. Um, and that was a that was a very key part of my education when I was going through the program as well. So I would agree with you that it's important that everybody comes to the table and sort of discusses that in a very frank way. Um, so. And that's actually one of the things that I appreciate the most about this book is the opportunity to sort of understand culture at a different level. Um, so, yeah, I would agree. Um, so you've both spoken about some of the successes that you've seen in the way that the medicine is taught today. And obviously your book highlights an enormous amount of success in terms of how to educate our students in a way that really informs them and allows them to live the medicine. Um, what are some of the challenges that you see in all of this in terms of um, allowing this medicine to be taught in, in, in the way that you would like it to be taught, in the way that you've seen it be taught in this book? I would say uh, there's a, a deficit or there's a real void in, in professional teacher training. Um, mm. Some of the schools in the United States are owned and even run by entrepreneurial business people rather than right. uh, people who are from the field or within the profession, although they obviously they hire skilled faculty for the most part. Um, but in terms of being a good clinician doesn't necessarily equate with being a good educator. And I think right. there's a lack of um, training ground, if you will, for professional educators within this field who have the you know, the best of both worlds, really. Um, I, I think that's a big challenge. Many times people, because they've graduated from Asian medicine school, you know, the next semester, they find themselves on the faculty. <laughs> so it, um, it's not necessarily a, a linear pathway that should be followed. Right, right. And Pamela, do you have I, any thoughts? I think that's ab absolutely, I mean, Deborah has really hit the nail on the head there. And I mean, I'm, I hate to say it, I'm appalled when I go to a convention and first of all, a, a teacher will stand up and, and either just read from a PowerPoint or uh, will give a demonstration without any concept of sight lines. People are hanging off the chandeliers, they're hanging off the doors trying to see what the person is demonstrating rather than something very simple which would come through teacher training where you bring the demonstration into the center of the pod as it were and have people encircle you, hopefully use mirrors so that they can see it from all different angles. But you know, even something as incredibly basic and as simple as this, time and time and time again, I get frustrated when I see so-called, you know, illustrious teachers, great gurus in their, in their field who have absolutely no sense of something as basic as sight lines or even how to break up a demonstration, you know, into segments and also give a lot of practice time. Unfortunately, there, there, there's a great tendency to spew a lot of theory rush the practical demo and give people barely any time to practice rather than the other way around. You know, it's, it's as, as Deborah has said, it's the experiential part of this. It's watching 
and doing, watching and doing in segments and then building all the, and then sort of linking all the parts together. So they get a very comprehensive understanding how everything hangs together. Um, another thing that I find very important, people come into Asian medicine from an incredible array of backgrounds, age groups, learning experiences. Some come from computer science, some from graphics, some people like you, uh, Melissa, from, you know, the textile arts, the um, arts and crafts side of life. Um, other people come from acting. Uh, some people are oil engineers. They're incredible. And teachers need to read these variances and differences and the different skills. And the difference between, say, somebody who's a, a pre-med grad from, from a local university and somebody who's coming back into to the workforce after raising a family of kids, maybe they're in their 50s or whatever. Um, and, and it's the art of a teacher to find those um, teaching methods that are going to honor all the, the entire range of learning skills that are in the classrooms, from those who are rote learners to those who are dyslexics to those who learn by touching and feeling and doing. Um, and, and again, this is something that would come through a more comprehensive and a very much more professional approach to teacher training, um, which I think is, is a zeal that, that, that both Deborah and I share, but is woefully inadequate in a lot of the schools, alas. How, how do you see um, a solution to this? Like, what do you see coming in order to help support this teacher training? Because I think that you're right, and I think that having had discussions with instructors who teach at um, the local graduate schools here in California, that they would agree that they feel under-trained under for their position and that there are very few of them that are born natural instructors. Mm. Um, so do you have... Um, solutions or a vision or do you know people who are working towards something that would help to support this kind of a system? I, I don't know if I know anything specifically to mention but I uh, some of the doctoral programs incorporate teaching or at least the ability to teach within their um, postgraduate programs so that's one step in the right direction. I know Marianne who has a chapter in the book um, recently completed her doctoral program and she did that simply because she is a teacher and she wanted to be, you know, set a good example and, and show for her students that she was trying to be, attain the, the highest order that she could so that she could trickle that down to her students. So, mm, Interesting. And Pam? Well, Marianne, of course, does have a lot of teaching experience, as does Kathleen, um, even before, you know, they do any additional training in that. I think the schools need to be made um, a lot more aware of it. Perhaps we, we need to write more in acupuncture today about the need for a comprehensive teacher training as a standard part. I mean, um, I helped to develop this at the Academy of Oriental Medicine in Austin. Um, and... Uh, you, you know, if it could also be built into continuing education requirements or um, for recertification or relicensing of teachers, I think that would be absolutely ideal. Um, but it's the awareness building and um, to get over this idea, as, as Deborah mentioned earlier, that uh, you know, the, the, the AAA, AAA, sorry, <laughs> straight, straight A student 
is not necessarily a good teacher. In fact, on the contrary, I have found it's the students who really grapple with the material, do the research, go on to the communities and try and sort of develop their own understanding of how medicine works and how health works and so on. They're the ones who make the best teachers because they have that passion and they also know because it didn't come easily to them, um, it necess won't necessarily come easily to, to the students they're going to teach. So they develop all kinds of new methods and ways um, to get that material across in a way that's, that, that's crisp and imaginative and very, very inspiring. Um, but, but again, it's, it's the teacher training um, that is absolutely crucial here. And they do a lot more teacher training in the Shiatsu schools in Europe uh, than they do in the US. And um, that's something that's always bothered me. Uh, how to develop it? I think we a, a podcast like this is a great way. And um, I think the schools um, could just sort of build it into their programs. I mean, I had to TA for a year um, as part of my teacher training in New York. And that meant everything. I mean, helping with the practical work as well as vacuuming the carpet and lighting the incense. Um, and working one-on-one -on -one with the students. And this was great training because it also enabled me to see which teachers, um, what, what methods worked with the students, because I was sort of on a bridge between the two as a TA, what methods actually worked with the students and, and what didn't and where the, where the teachers sort of skimmed over things or where they couldn't answer questions and so on. So for a whole year, I had that great observational insight of what worked and what didn't and which students were unhappy with this, that and the other and, you know, how I could address that with the instructor and so on. So I think um, just highlighting and encouraging more TAing um, and enabling um, graduates to, to work with a number of different teachers in a number of different fields, I think is ideal. I mean, when I train TAs, I also tell them, for God's sake, get out of the school, go and watch a choreographer. That's a great way to learn good bodywork teaching skills because a good choreographer is always working in and with and very vigorously um, with the students. Um, you know, go and watch teachers in very, very different situations and see what inspires and fires you. Um, don't just um, stick within the confinements of an Asian med school. Right, right. Well, and I'm curious, I don't, I don't know what the experience is with other graduate school programs or with um, even any sort of Asian body um, therapy programs here in the U.S., but I'll share that my experience uh, with the three schools that we have here in the Los Angeles area is that they're very short-staffed, and so the and they they tend to share teachers. It's very common that if someone instructs at one school, they'll also be an instructor at another school for the same class. Sure. Um, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts as to how they can engage more people into the process of instructing and also build this into their curriculum if they're already short-staffed. Um, because I think what you have a lot of times is people who are teaching, but they also have full-time practices as well. Sure, you know? sure. So do either of you have any thoughts on how that could be addressed? Deborah? <laughs> well, I mean, I would suspect that that's driven by the economy, not the desire right. to be having faculty all over, you know, running across LA traffic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Nobody wants to run age. across LA traffic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from a graduate school perspective, I always enjoyed people who actually were um, in 
in the community actually practicing and bringing their wisdom into yes. the classroom. Mm -hmm. So, yes. you know, I, I like the idea of adjunct faculty from that point of view, so that they're yes. not purely academics. Um, but, you know, I, I think the situation you described, Melissa, is, is very likely an economic situation that, I mean, people of that caliber who are able to teach at the graduate level cannot subsist on a, you know, a part-time teacher's salary. They just cannot. No, right. So they need to supplement with their, right. their practice. Right. Mm -hmm. well, and, I, and also, go ahead. also the practice feeds the teaching. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly weaving case study material or um, examples of, of, of some encounter that I had with a patient into my teaching. It brings it alive. Somebody who's just teaching doesn't have that freshness. Right. Or, or that ability to bring new material in. And not only that, I mean, it, you know, I once, I taught a class and during the small hours of the morning, um, I had this very urgent email from somebody saying, oh God, they had a patient who was suicidal, what should they do? And I was able to give them, you know, the, the HIPAA guidelines and what they should do and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, I was able to bring that from the small hours of the morning right into my 9 a.m. class. And I think these sort of things are very, very important that um, that nobody is, uh, uh, you know, totally a teacher, but they do have this this constant sort of interaction between their private practice and um, and 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 also their teaching practice. And not only that, I, I think um, and this is something that that I stress over and over. This is a win win situation to organize a lot more external um, student clinics in the town's community clinics, in their battered women's and children's shelters, in their retirement centers, in um, um, homeless centers, um, so that students, as I say, get out of the comfort zone and, and work with whole ranges of different members of the population. And this is also very good for a teacher to kind of to, to guide and harmonize these um, both externships and external student clinics. Not only does it spread the word, but it brings our uh, medicine, whether it's needling or body work, to very underserved members of the population. And at the same time, the people who work with them. Um, I've done off-site clinics uh, right here in one of the um, Austin hospitals. I brought a bunch of my students in and we did two or three pain weeks there where every day there were, you know, people sitting in chairs doing either needling or, or shiatsu or tween now, medical qigong. We worked on everybody from surgeons to security guards. And because it was in a very open atrium, everybody that passed by, people coming on shift, going off shift and so on, could see what we were doing. And I tell you, the lines for our work were incredible. So, um, and I think from a teaching perspective, this, this also is very important because it also enables the teacher to, to, to develop interaction skills with the students um, with a very different slice of the population with all kinds of people from all walks of life um, and 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 to guide students through this I mean some of them could take it some couldn't I, I took uh, one group of my students to the Austin Drug and Rehab. It was a residential center for drug and alcohol rehab. Now, there was a cross-section of everybody there, from economists to store managers to the homeless. To, I mean, there was a total cross-section of society. Well, one of my students had the arrogance to say to me, um, Pam, I don't want to go to that clinic because I'm not likely to deal with that type of patient. 
And of course, my answer was, how do you know? Because a lot of people who are addicted show no outer signs of it. And you may discover this through your clinical practice. You need to come along um, to learn some of the nuances and to get over these assumptions that you have about people who are addicted. Do you know? So um, again, I say this, this is another challenge um, but, but something that to me is crucially important because it's a win-win situation, but where it's the teacher's zeal and imagination and ability to interact with these different community centers um, that is a test of how they personally will be able to sort of spread the work through the community. Uh, Melissa, can I just add a little bit to what Pam said, or I guess reiterate what she said? Um, there's a, a fabulous chapter, I probably should have picked it as my favorite, that Pam actually wrote about uh, delivering her trauma workshops around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it highlights the fact that the teacher, since we're talking about teacher training, doesn't necessarily have to have this image of being at a podium and delivering some profound statement. I think setting up these experiential learning opportunities like Pam does and makes it applicable, particularly with teaching trauma, makes it applicable to every single student in the class is really important. So sometimes the teacher is facilitator rather than kind of lecturer. It has a much mm. more profound impact in developing the, the skills of compassion or, you know, outreach to just any human being that might walk through your practice door looking for, you know, your healing skills. So right. that's a very good point. Oh, it's, a, it's a good point. Thank you, Deborah. Okay, so you have both addressed um, some of the successes and some of the challenges in all of this, and we've sort of gone down a couple of little rabbit holes about um, this topic, mm -hmm. uh, which has been very enjoyable. Thank you. Um, I'm curious to know uh, how this feeds into what you might feel is the biggest challenge for the future development of Asian medicine as a reputable um, preventative healthcare modality. Do you want to tackle it first, Deborah? <laughs> I mean, it's such a you know a loaded question and probably opinionated mm. answers. But I, I think awareness from the consumer it needs some kind of a, a publicity campaign so that the consumer does not have trepidation about Asian medicine that it really is can be integrated into one's health care rather than their you know illness care. Um, it, it, and the accessibility is much greater now, but the fact that, I mean, the education behind the Asian medicine practitioner is very significant. Mm. Um, and, but I think the general public is not aware, and I think the practitioners are so focused on their practice that they're not necessarily uh, receiving, um, even as part of their training, about being good business people. <laughs> right. So I think the publicity and recognition and awareness are the key factors in, in having this recognition. And I know they do that at the national level with the you know AAAOM, the, the membership association, but it, it needs to go broader than that, I think. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And also, I think um, serving special fields, like right at the moment, what we're doing is initiating a lot more awareness of working on... Um, um, members of the military coming back very war damaged from Afghanistan and from Iraq and developing an awareness of how our work can uh, can be extremely helpful with PTSD, various forms of PTSD. And um, 
We have Angela McConnell in the AOBTA, who's both a major in the U.S. Air Force Reserve and also a shiatsu practitioner who's doing this up at Walter Reed. Um, and I'm, I've also done this at one of the military bases, um, Landstuhl base in, in Germany. And um, I think th the thing is that every, every new practitioner, what, what, what I say to them is this, first of all, where, where does your passion lie in this medicine? Don't just think you can hang up your shingle and people are going to come running through the door. What is your passion with this? Go after those specific areas in the population. Go to the community clinics. Try and work with a group practice. If it's OBGYN, go and work on a number of OBGYN practitioners and see if you can't practice alongside them. Or like in, in Austin, I say anybody who works in Austin has to be an expert in allergies because it's one of the major problems here. Go to one of the allergy clinics um, or, or, or see if you can't work in one of the pain clinics or at least do observation there because you'll pick up a lot of tips and not only that, but you will also acquire patients who'll be curious about your work. So I think the bottom line here um, is that pioneering zeal in the practitioner and in the new graduate um, to go out and, and blaze the trails and do the experimental work and if necessary do some pro bono work um, to get the to get this medicine out into the public into underserved areas and also um, and to raise awareness of what it can do that um, yes there is a role in something like PTSD yes there is a role in psychosocial problems and so on so you know tap into who's doing, for example, off-site um, clinics through the Department of Psychology of the local university, Department of Social Work, see if you can't interact with some of their um, external clinics, you know, but um, it doesn't just come to you on a plate. And where I have found where the graduates have really sort of made a difference and have been able to grow their practices is with this pioneering work. Those who failed dismally are people who've, say, gone into very conservative towns in Texas and, and um, gone into the newspapers to say that they do crystal um, work and, and crystal healing. Well, I mean, God help us, there's a Baptist church on every church, on every street corner. Um, this for them is absolutely taboo. So there's also an art in reading the nuances of the city and where the emphases are. And definitely if there's a military base, go and offer your services there. If there are large animal shelters, go and work there. Um, if if there are um, uh, you know, battered women's centers and so on. In other words, do that initially in order, first of all, to gain experience and secondly um, to create a wider awareness because it's not that you're going to pick up patients amongst the um, amongst the clients but you will certainly pick up patients amongst the staff and maybe even go and do group work and at the same time go if, if there's a local IBM or a, a you know a local company go and do chair work on people who are suffering from computer related aches and pains you know, this is how I started my practice in New York. I used to go to an office every Friday and work on six people. Um, you know, so that it's this outreach work and this pioneering and being very adventurous with it because very few doors close in your face. Very, very few. If you have, have, have the charm and the zeal to do it, believe me, doors will open all over. That's very interesting. I haven't heard that particular perspective before on how to grow your practice once you've graduated. It's very refreshing to hear that.
actually. Deborah, do you have any? Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, 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 and I, I always tell my students if I, if I were sort of freshly graduated today and going out into the community, what I would do is, I'd go into an open a, a shop front. Now there are plenty of shop fronts that have come open on the market because of the economic downslide. Go make a really good deal with the landlord, or do a trade with your your work for say a month's rent. Set up your chairs in the window and get a, a whole group of your colleagues to come along and just do chair work in a very, very busy area of town. So passers-by next to the coffee shop or the bookshop or or whatever can see what you're doing. And then in the back behind screens, you know, you can have your tables and your mats set up for the more personal one-hour um, consults and, and, um, and treatments and so on. But, you know, make, make it delightful, um, use beautiful colors, have it very elegant and dignified and very, very simple, but have that kind of shopfront approach to this work. Uh, first of all, it's exciting. I mean, I love to see it. And secondly, uh, people will crowd the windows. I've, I even said to one student, there are three futon shops in, in, in Austin. Go and do shiatsu in a, in a shop front of a futon shop because, first of all, it's a win-win. You're going to get clients and they will sell more futons. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> you know, so it's that sort of an imaginative approach to building your business that I think is, especially today, because everybody's scared of the economy, Um you know, so so it, it does need a lot of zeal and even sort of arranging packages for sessions. I know there's some people that do like the 15 minute businessman's red eye special or, um, you, you know, the half hour um, prior to your flight session to help prep you for jet lag. So people are also building sort of packages into their into their sessions rather than just saying, oh, an hour and a half is 75 bucks or whatever. Actually create packages and titles and names because that, that'll also intrigue the population and spark the imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you. Deborah, do you have anything that you would like to add to what it is that Pam has said? No, I think she's covered all the bases and then some. I, I was going to say, I think she has too. I think anybody who listens to this podcast is going to have a whole bunch of new oh, ideas. Great advice. But I, I would love Deborah to talk more about examinations because she's the absolute and total expert in, in, in multiple choice crafting. I learned all my multiple choice crafting from Deborah. And, um, and the interesting thing is that neither of us grew up with multiple choice because we both come from a British educational system. Um, but, but the combination of, of her it, it, it extraordinary capacity to, to, to help teachers develop and craft multiple choice questions combined with the sort of um, practical and, and other forms of examinations that need to be done in the schools is also, uh, you know, very fundamental to what we're talking about here. Um, I'm begging the question, how do you examine a practitioner to prepare them for the field? I think that's a fantastic question, Pam. Thank you for redirecting us to that. Deborah, would you like to share your expertise? Well, my expertise is such that I know that I don't know the answers. <laughs> um, and, and although I have a, a segment in the uh, Santa Skybook about multiple choice items, um, there are certainly many other ways to do assessment. So working for the uh, certification board that uses their exam for licensing in most states in the US for acupuncture, um, 
multiple choices is a good way to assess large groups of people, but they're not necessarily um, just rote memory type questions. Uh, working with the, the uh, massage licensing exam now, where we test thousands of people each year entering the massage therapy profession and bodywork profession, um, we're, we're able to, uh, we've developed skill over time and in training people uh, to really drill down and examine um, concepts in very broad ways, looking at clinical skills uh, and, and responses to multiple choice items in a school setting where it's a little, the ratio of, um, you know, assessor to, to candidate ratio is much smaller than on a national scale. You can really glean a lot of information, oftentimes by the incorrect answer that a student may give rather than the correct one. Um, so, it, you know, multiple choice items are a valuable tool, but there is skill in, in writing very good multiple choice items. It's not just a flippant type of a quiz situation that one puts oneself in. Mm -hmm. So, Is there a resource um, available? I mean, we've, we've sort of talked about how instructors need more support so that they can you know, be much better educators in the classroom. Is there a resource available to help? Instructors understand the value of a multiple choice test and how to um, how to form one that will. Uh, well, Deborah's I mean, chapter. Yeah, I was going to say Deborah's chapter in the book. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable for me to answer that, but yes, there is a chapter in the book um, where I, you know, try and broach that subject at least and, and give some pretty broad guidelines that uh, many people have commented have been helpful and like, oh, I didn't think of that. So, um, yeah, I. I mean, in the educational community, not just within the Asian medicine community, you know, there are copious amounts of resources about writing tests and assessments that uh, people don't necessarily have the time to seek out into other professions. But uh, I try to amalgamate the experience I've had working with numerous um, wonderful educators in this country in the Asian medicine community and somewhat customizing it for, for the needs of that community. Right, right. Well, I think that's a, another perfect reason for people to go out and buy the book. Um, so I'm glad that you shared that with us and I'm glad that Pamela was not afraid to step up and, and let us know that there was a chapter in the book that talked about that. <laughs> and also, um, Melissa, um, Deborah Howard's chapter in the book also talks about um, exams and, and teaching. It's all more from the perspective of shiatsu. So um, that that's, I'd like to also, you know, just draw attention to that. Teachers, we've all known the best and the rest is the name of the chapter. And um, Deborah's chapter is teaching and testing. And as I say, it was actually highlighted in a review in the Massage Therapy Journal of the AMTA um, just this month, um, summer 2009. So there, there are ex excellent guidelines, um, as I say, given in both, both those great chapters. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. I did have the opportunity to read that review and was very pleased um, with what they had to say. So I'm hoping that this book um, becomes much more available to a much wider audience in the near future. So what happens from here with the two of you? You've worked together to co-author this book and it's obvious that you have some very deep beliefs about what needs to change in our current um, educational system for Asian medicine. Do you two have any future plans to work together on another project or individual plans that sort of address this same topic? 
Well, I, I would love to do teachers' workshops with, together with Deborah. I mean, we've done panel discussions both here in Austin and also at Oakham in Portland, uh, which were enormous fun. But um, I'd love to do teacher workshops with, with Deborah. It's just a matter of our schedules and our very different lives, sort of planning and bringing that, that dream together. Excellent. Pam and I are going to be constantly working on projects, whether, you know, we... <laughs> bring any in for a landing and focus on any but we're always looking at, at ideas and really the, the prompt with this book and our, our wish was that it would inspire more dynamic classrooms and more teacher training so that's not to say we have to be the ones you know doing it maybe we'd be more of a, a catalyst and, and participants but right um, yeah so it's yeah I think maybe more of a catalyst and you know we want the conversations to continue as we said in the book that's why we called it conversations with teachers of asian medicine so uh, we hope the conversations will continue we'll do what we can to to keep prompting that absolutely excellent mm. is there anything else that either of you would like to share before we sign off for the morning well, I think there's just one thing that we decided to use a Q&A format in the book for the very simple reason um, to give it immediacy and also to ask questions and and sort of prompt answers from teachers that we thought maybe they would be too modest uh, to address if we simply asked them to write a chapter. It made it uh, crisper, faster, more immediate. And as I say, I think we really and truly got the best out of 26 very, very different teachers by 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 uh, you know using this q a format it also makes it very readable and um and i i, I think um it works it works in this context because it makes it just a lot more accessible to a much wider audience and also you know to people in a much wider field massage therapy teachers of, of um, physical therapy occupational therapy and so on and even medicine can uh, western med can can learn a lot from the, from some of these q a um, chapters i would have to agree with you i've had the opportunity to to read the book and the qa format actually does allow for you to sit down and take things in in much smaller pieces and think about it much more deeply so i'm glad that you chose to use that format well, thank you both so much, Pam and Deborah, for your time today. It has been such a pleasure getting to know both of you and having the opportunity to hear each of you speak about this book and about your hopes for the field of Asian medicine. Um, thank you, Melissa, for the opportunity. We appreciate yes. it. Yes, we really do, Melissa. Thank you so much for giving us so much time. You're welcome. <laughs> and um, for our viewers, if you would like to learn more uh, or if you would like to purchase Santa Sky, you can visit Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or iUniverse.com. And if you would like to reach Pam and Deborah directly, you can do so by emailing them at sand, S-A-N-D, two as in the number two, sky, S-K-Y, at gmail.com. So thank you both and have a lovely day.